Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Mark W. Johnson is co-founder and senior partner of InnoSight, a innovation and strategy consulting firm, which he co-founded with Harvard Business School professor Clayton M. Christensen, who has actually been on our program a couple times before. He's the author of several books. The most recent one we're going to be talking about here today, it's entitled Reinvent Your Business Model, How to Seize the White Space for Transformative Growth. Mark, welcome to AMA Edgewise. It's great to be here, Dave. Thanks now for this, having me. Would you call this sort of an update to your previous book, Seize the White Space, or is it the spiritual successor? Sometimes <laughs> like in, in some of these movie trilogies and whatnot, they, they say, well, it's not really the sequel or the prequel. It's kind of like in the same universe type of thing. How would you describe no, I, this book? I would say it's an update, but I would put an emphasis that it's an important update. And the reason I say that is because there is now an added chapter on digital, digital transformation. And I think it's really important to make the distinction that digital enables the ability to create new business models, which therefore creates new values. Okay. So I think it's an important update in that we've added this digital chapter. I think it's important in that we've been able to update some of the case studies that we've had. And I think it's important just in the sense that business model innovation has become, in general, more important in trying to manage, not less important as time has gone on. You do a great job of laying out and explaining and defining, and you give us diagrams and everything for your solution, the four-box business model framework. What is the four-box business model framework? The four-box, first off, is a representation of value, value creation for the customer, value capture for the company, and value delivery that the company needs to repeatedly do to create value for the customer and to capture value for itself. So that's at the high level how I would describe it. Then going a step deeper, I would say the first box around value creation, which we would call the customer value proposition, is just a way to represent how you would develop an important unmet job, as we call it, you know, identify an important unmet job to be done. Some would call them needs. We make a distinction because we don't want it to be about the need of a product. We want you to think, what are you trying to get done in your life? And job is a better way to say that. Of course, they should be important and unmet because if they're not important, why would you pursue it? And if they're well met, that means you're in stiff competition. So a process to identify important unmet jobs a ability to understand not just the product or service that can address that, but how you would go about providing that product or service. What we would conclude is the experience in the purchase and use. And then, of course, the means by which you pay for it, which doesn't necessarily have to be a one-time payment. That all together in addressing the job to be done is a value proposition, how you create value for the customer. Value captures about simply the income statement and the balance sheet for a for-profit corporation. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but the reality of it is companies that get established and develop over a long haul have a very prescribed way that they define their income statement, their balance sheet, and they don't make changes in a significant way. They don't change the overhead structure. They don't think about how the velocity of product and service could go through it can fundamentally change. So mm -hmm. the second part of the model is to understand that sometimes going and serving new customers in new ways, for example, 
can fundamentally require a change in the way you make money and the way that you manage assets. So that's the profit formula is a way to describe value capture and to be willing to change that. And then the final piece of the puzzle are the remaining two boxes, which are part of value delivery, resources and processes. These are the ways of working to take people, dollars, tangible assets, bring them together through the right activities in the organization to provide that value to the customer and to capture the value for yourself. And the same as with a profit formula and a value proposition, oftentimes this set of resources and processes or what you could call the operating model has to change as well. And being able to understand those resources and processes and how they interact and how they might need to be changed is another important element. But those constitute the last two boxes of the four-box model. What are some early warning signs or omens that a company, an organization, needs to consider a new business model? Yeah. Well, some of the most obvious, I shouldn't say most obvious, but more nearer term insights that you can derive is what we would call the product life cycle, Mm -hmm. where you you start with providing needs that are around the basic features and functions and reliability of a product. This could be like the automotive industry, right? It's all about what does the product deliver with the Demings of the world and the Toyota quality movement. It became about reliability. But over time, as we are in today, it's much more than that. It's about convenience vis-a-vis Uber and Zipcar. Convenience and customization, it can ultimately move to cost. So one of the signals that can be discerned just from the current businesses, if people are no longer valuing added features and functions, they may appreciate it, but they won't pay for it. So the commoditization is happening If it's moving to where you really need to think through to be much more highly customized, much more convenience-oriented, much more cost-driven than what you had before, that can be Mm -hmm. a sign that you need to consider changing the business model within the existing market. Another sign would be trying to go in a place like emerging markets. Mm -hmm. And the reason you might say that is, and this is the longer-term issue, is if you start to see that you have a growth gap, that your core business, no matter how you try to extend it over the long haul, won't achieve your long-term top-line growth objectives. That's what we call going beyond the core into what might be white space. That white space requires at least an openness to the potential to have to invent a new business model to be able to achieve value in that market. White space just sounds so non-threatening to me, but there have been other people who we've interviewed, who indicate that with their clientele, with the executives that they're coaching and with the work they're trying to get done within their or their companies, that fear mm-hmm. uh, and that the unknown right. is, is paralyzing. Right. And it really causes some of these organizations to freeze up. They might have a once every quarter innovation island kind of discussion and everybody gets Hawaiian shirts and little beverages with paper umbrellas and stuff like that. But they keep leaving innovation island and none of these good ideas are ever acted upon uh, out of fear. Do you you see that? I completely agree with all of that as far as an observation. And it's understandable because your white space is the unknown. It's the unknown in terms of it's a new customer that needs to be served in a fundamentally new way. That's a new value proposition. There's, again, the potential that the way you operate 
your activities and the way you make money needs to change in support of that. That's the example of going into try to reach the emerging middle class and emerging markets. So from a perspective of trying to do something completely different, you're not only going what we would call an adjacency move where you're just going to a new geography or selling a new product, but the basic operating model and the way you make money is your same. You now have multiple degrees of freedom that are changing. It's not just this new customer you've never served, but you have to operate in a whole new way. It is riskier. It is much more foreign than just sticking to your core. But at the same time, if you just stick to your core and that business is in declining or commoditizing, your long-term sustained growth has been put at risk. So the answer is, and I think we'll probably get into it, is how do you manage the risks by the way that you manage the process to develop new business models? And it's all in the way that process is managed to mitigate the fear and the risk of going into white space. Won't going digital just solve all my problems if I, if I just if I just I'm being an idiot here of right. course but you know just can I just go digital and won't you know all all of my my challenges just be rectified overnight well it's important to understand that digital is a technology you know one of the reasons we've spent so much time on business models is as you know partnering with Clay Christensen started out with the whole thing around disruption disruptive innovation you know how do companies get disrupted and it was quickly understood that the technology enables the disruption, but it's the business model that actually disrupts. So when digital equipment gets disrupted by personal computers, it's not that they couldn't have just said, well, why can't I just build a personal computer? It was the business model that was threatened and that was disruptive. The fact that personal computers had lower margins and you had to sell more volume versus mainframe and mini computers, mini computers that were at a much higher margin. So the whole organization couldn't manage that fundamental change. So when we say, why can't I just go digital? You have to understand that digital affords the opportunity for a company to wrap a business model around it that can enable value to be created for a customer in a better way. But that's kind of where I started with the book. Without understanding that digital needs to be coupled with business model, right. digital alone will be insufficient. If you try to do digital without being open to the changes in the overall business model you need to make, you're not going to be effective in this digital world and in trying to pursue digital transformation. I can't speak to every single example you give in the book, but it struck me that the majority of them, as it related to seizing the white space or developing new business models and, and cool solutions that almost always involved enabling technology, but different ways of handling payments, different ways of handling customer service and stuff like that. And maybe I'm wrong. If I am, I, I apologize. But in general, it, it seems more hay is made, more money is made, more activity is generated these days by the... I don't call it the the upstream or the downstream, but by descending from the premium offering to one for everybody. Mm -hmm. do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. By, by you know leaving the uh, luxury, high tech, specialized right. area, custom built right. stuff, descending down into more of a it's componentized. Right. It's very technology driven, but it's sort of that going from here down to here type of thing. Yeah. Is is that fair? That's, I need to say that. That's very fair. As you think about, again, with Clay Christensen's work on disruptive innovation, 
you know, that thinking has evolved as a better way to describe it that's happened in these industries like personal computers disrupting the mini computer market to your point what it did was enable computing power for the masses Mm -hmm. so whereas individuals couldn't afford five hundred thousand dollar mini computers that were only provided to corporations they now could afford two thousand dollar machines that could be brought to your home or used in schools which was the other usage still being used today, but an early application that went beyond the corporate computing market. So we've reframed disruptive innovation as really about the most powerful element of it is new market disruption, Mm -hmm. which the way to describe that is enabling a larger population of less skilled, less wealthy people to have access to whatever it is than normally they couldn't have in the past. And more often than not, it's a larger group of people. And it's a larger group of people, right? Like bringing cars to the masses. Exactly. You know, bringing that down. And so that has been the mechanism over really the whole movement of the industrialization period and capitalism to provide goods and services to a larger group of people. And it is a form of disruption because – the incumbents that are serving the high-end best customers have difficulty transitioning to this more enabling, lower cost, sure. more to the masses kind of group. Mm-hmm. But business model innovation is the underpinnings of what connects with that product or service to be able to successfully receive the rents, the sure. capture the value. Sure. So it's not enough just to say, hey, we have something like a portable ultrasound that, you know, individual doctors can use, not just radiologists. You have to also change the whole way that it's sold and the way money is made and, you know, all the different elements up and down the value chain. Have you seen it go the other way? Have you seen a solution, a technology, uh, a whatever, a product, whatever, that comes in at the medium to low level and has found a way to premium, premiumatize, whatever, found a way to make a higher level offering or a more sophisticated, more expensive, mm-hmm. you know, richer type of offering. Yeah, I think, you know, and this is kind of where it gets complicated and everything's relative. So, you know, maybe the prime example is the iPhone that came in and really, I think, amped up the idea of a phone. It was more expensive, really. But relative to comparing it to a computer, right it was actually more accessible. Right. So relative to a phone, it was absolutely a move up market. You know, you had a yeah. platform of applications and so forth. Sure. And so from that point of view, it absolutely was increasing value and increasing costs. Sure. But it also brought in computing and the benefits of computing into having a handheld on your phone. I'm also thinking about the evolution of certain things like the Honda Motor Company. You Uh know what I mean? Yeah. I owned a Honda Civic CVCC. God bless it. I, you know, it was like the second station wagon that arrived on American shores I must have owned. You know what I mean? And it was (laughs) affordable. But if you got locked into that Honda Civic brand and that understanding and you treasured sort of what it was, you go out and try to buy a Civic now. Yeah. And it's, it's not... That it's got all the right. li- liability and it's got all this. I mean, right. They have a different brand that covers that entry level stuff now, different sure. make or whatever. The Civic is actually kind of 
it's pricey. You know right. what I mean? It's right. exclusive and it's evolved, right. like with its customer base a little bit. So there's a mix. So if you take the Civic, I would argue that that is, and it's completely normal and it's completely legitimate. It's sustaining innovation. So you take individual models of cars, they sustain through innovation right. to become better and better to improve their performance. And then cars come from underneath. So in some ways you could say Honda disrupted the US automotive market oh, yeah. with things like yeah. you know the Civic and sure. cars like that. But then Kia comes in exactly. underneath, right? And then potentially Cherry and some sure. of the Chinese manufacturers. So is that about brand loyalty or something like that? What What is that? Well, I think it's about there is brand loyalty and there's just the natural tendency of all of us to want to continually improve. <clears throat> and as you continue to improve and move up market, it affords the opportunity yeah. for something to come in that yeah. provides lower costs. That's cool. That's cool stuff. What role does organizational culture play in the success or failure of a new business model? Well, organizational culture, the way I define it, is somewhat intertwined with the business model, the current ongoing operating business model of a company. And the yeah, culture... But, but it's really hard to touch. It is hard to touch, but you, I think we can define it. And this is some of the work from Edgar Schein from MIT, who you know was sort of the guru about, I think, culture processes that are replicated over and over and again become quite embedded in the organization. Rules, norms, and metrics which govern the business model. These things that are much more rigid end up defining culture because the company that doesn't really think about the business model anymore, they just abide by the rules and norms and they follow certain set defined processes. Those things end up defining the culture and so what happens is that business model comprised of processes rules norms and metrics a way of making money inhibit the ability to prioritize a new business model that requires different processes different rules norms and metrics to govern the way that model works and so the only way to really deal with that is to have one senior management understanding where the whole enterprise is going and how a new business model fits into it. And two, being able to govern that new business model and tie it to the core business in a way that's appropriate so that it can have the freedom to do what it needs to do, but be able to have resources available as a core enterprise to be able to allow it to grow and thrive. And, yeah, and cultures that really are kind of stuck in the mud are, are just not going to be able to do that. Right. So culture is a very difficult thing to break, and so that's why the best thing to do is to think about how do you develop business models outside of the mainstream core for that whole cultural reason. In your experience, is it a better strategy to find new customers for existing products or to create new products experiences for existing customers? I think it all depends on really, again, doing an evaluation and saying, are the existing customers facing a unsatisfied, really important job to be done, of which you, by changing your business model, could satisfy? If the answer is yes, then absolutely, I think you have a leg up. You know, I call that the white space within, sure. you know, and Dow Corning did that with its silicone business. Hilti did it with its small tools business. 
those are great opportunities and they should be because um, you've got the customers because you have in your, the customers. In, your, in your universe exactly yeah. and you know them and if you can just go deeper with them you know it's always best to build off a customer set but if the opportunity really to reinvent the business model to serve their needs isn't really there or b there's a question about what's the overall scope and scale of doing it and it's not enough to fill the growth gap then you have to look beyond that customer set to really new and different businesses altogether. What constitutes a valid test? How long does something like that take before you say, okay, lesson learned, next? How long do you hang on to something? I think the most important thing, as we talked about earlier, is that business model innovation is by definition a test and learn process. Most successful business models that are in place and that are at scale have changed the essence of how they work four times before they get it right. So the name of the game here is to, whether you're talking white space within an existing customer doing differently or a whole new and different, that you think in a entrepreneurial way. You start small and you iterate. And how long that can take depends, but I would say being able to give something in a more pilot-esque with a preferred customer not scaling it over say a year period is probably the better way to go than trying to take thing out in mass and try to just say hey will this work because Mm -hmm. then you haven't managed the risk and just to wrap up here i ask this question to pretty much everybody it focuses things almost back at the our population the ama's population and we like to think that people who are either new to management or aspiring to leadership or whatever they come to us and they listen to our programs and they attend our workshops and stuff like that because they want to become the best managers and leaders they can be what's in this book for a a new manager or an aspiring leader well i think there are other books about business models and business model innovation what i've tried to do is two things one really try to focus on developing a language. This is the idea of just four boxes. Some simple way to represent what do we mean by a business model, what it is, what it isn't. Because I think for an aspiring manager and for a manager and his or her team, building a common language and a common way to frame business model change is the first step. Because too often we just have too many ways we talk about it. The second major piece, and I would say what distinguishes it, I think, from other books is taking it from a general management perspective. We've really tried to develop a very how-to about how do you go about incubating, accelerating, and putting in place within an existing large organization a new business model, and really tried to figure out how to methodically go through the steps to give it the best chance of success and to mitigate the risk along the way. We've been speaking to Mark Johnson. His book is Reinvent Your Business Model, How to Seize the White Space for Transformative Growth. This is a great book, Mark. Good luck with it. Thank you, Dave. AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events.
We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 